Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. So you want to start manufacturing CBD, but you're not exactly sure where to start. Well, my next guest says you need to hire a dietary supplement veteran. Asa Waldstein is a longtime dietary supplement executive, new SVP of operations at Functional Remedies, as well as chair of the American Herbal Products Association Cannabis Committee. He joins us now to make the case for why dietary supplement recruiting is necessary for CBD execs. Welcome, Asa. Hey, Neil. Thanks so much. I'm a big fan of the show and really excited to be here today. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks for joining us. So why do you think someone with a supplement background should have an active management role in the company? Well, there's really a big learning curve in the hemp, in the hemp world, and it takes a really long time to get up to speed. And those with supplement experience can really help shorten your time to get to operational efficiency. The time that you save by not having to learn on the job, which people are coming from a lot of industries, it may be coming from apparel or some other industry. Having been able to shorten that, that learning curve time is crucial, especially in this really rapidly changing hemp world. And by avoiding launch or scale-up delays, that can mean the difference between your company succeeding or failing. Regulations are a framework, and so I'll just talk about dietary supplement regulations, which are, in my opinion, the best regulations to operate a hemp CBD company under. So regulations are a framework, and it's really difficult to translate those into reality. People from the supplement world have experience interpreting those regulations in a way that makes sense for their company. The most important reason to hire from the supplement world, you want someone to set up quality systems in a way that is robust, but is also developed with operational efficiency in mind. If you bring people into your hemp CBD company that may come from a different background, a pharma background or something, they could perhaps set up too rigid of a quality system and that inefficiencies can become magnified as the company grows. And this can lead to longer lead times and higher costs. And I'd be remiss, Danielle, if I didn't talk about compliance systems. Folks that have been around the supplement world for a long time they know how to communicate their company message correctly. Those that have been in the supplement world for a long time know how to communicate their company message without getting into FDA, FTC, and class action trouble. And supplement executives know how to weave that culture of compliance into the company. You mentioned regulations, of course, and with CBD in such a gray area right now, and you mentioned it moves so quickly, I mean, how do you actually keep up? It, it has to be very challenging. It really is challenging. It's hard, to, it's hard to keep up. So one of the many things that I love about the hemp industry, beside this wonderful healing plant, the health and prosperity it's from myself, the family, and many American farmers, is this crazy industry keeps moving quickly. And you have to iterate and improve to stay on top. And especially, you have to keep iterating to stay on top within the ever-moving compliance guardrails. So what I like to do, here's my checklist of how I can educate myself and then my colleagues. Number one, follow industry publications, like Nutri-Ingredients. I love <laughs> Nutri-Ingredients, it's true. And one of the only good things that's come out of the pandemic era is there's so much amazing webinar content all the time. So I find a lot of these on LinkedIn. I also like to follow APA, 
as you mentioned, I chair the American Herbal Products Association Cannabis Committee. APA is a huge help. If you're an APA member, they send out a weekly newsletter with regulatory cliff notes, which is great. And there's also lots of cannabis committee meetings as new regulations come out. You don't really even have to be a member of APA to benefit from some of the resources. There's a lot of great non-member content. Now, my silly joke, Danielle, is that I read every warning letter. I'm at the gym, it's Wednesday morning, pre-pandemic, of course, and warning letters come out every Wednesday. And I love reading them. There's been such a slurry of warning letters coming out now with the FDA and FTC that I can't say I read them all. I was going to say, um, (laughs) that's a full-time job these days. Yes, indeed. I know, and life goes on. So I, I really like reading as many of the FDA and FTC warning letters as I can. So when you speak with CBD manufacturers, how knowledgeable would you say they are? What do you think they need the most help with? Is it regulations? Is it something else? Sure. There are a lot of great companies in the hemp CBD space, but generally speaking, there's quite a bit of room for improvement. It's really important for hemp CBD companies to understand that if they want to be treated legitimately, they need to act legitimately. And what I mean by that is registering their facility with the FDA. Also, labeling basics. I'm seeing there's a lot of room for improvement there with labeling basics. I'm still seeing a lot of companies not putting their product in the correct supplement facts panel layout. There's also a lot of room for improvements with listing the ingredients correctly. And for crying out loud, please don't put no THC or THC free (laughs) on your label unless you've got a big budget for lawyers and class actions. (laughs) I think a lot of companies still need help understanding how to market their product without making claims. So what I like to say is before marketing your product, first know what can get you in trouble, what pitfalls to avoid. And this is why I suggest learning how to read FDA and FTC enforcement trends. This is an important way to fine-tune your messaging in a compliant way. Now, as somebody who reads all these warning letters, have you ever seen anybody who got a warning letter who didn't have the correct label format? Ah, yes. This is a great question. So in almost all of the CBD warning letters pre-COVID, the FDA would mention, hey, your product is misbranded because it says it's a dietary supplement, but it's not. Or it says it's a food, but it's not. But I haven't seen anybody get in trouble in the plaintiff attorney world for labeling their product as a dietary supplement that was not publicly traded and was not making any claims. So in my, in my opinion and my experience and what I've seen is if you're labeling your product as a dietary supplement and you're not making claims, you're pretty low risk in that category. So I know you regularly present on how to interpret CGMPs and how to interpret the FDA, FTC, the the class action matrix, if you will, in a way that protects dietary supplements and and hemp CBD companies. What is the, the biggest question that you get from folks who you speak with? So I think one of the biggest questions is, what do you mean I can't say that on my socials? What do you mean that I can't put a post a product review or a testimonial on What I like to remind people of is anything that's on your social media, website, blogs, or YouTube, for example, is considered an extension of your label. Yeah, because social media posts and claims fall under product labeling, so retweets and likes are actually interpreted as company endorsement under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So yeah, when we look at FDA and FTC and the way they kind of 
split up their responsibilities. The FDA handles how products are manufactured and labeled. And then the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, handles how things are marketed. Now in this digital era, there's a lot of crossover. It's a very confusing area for so many people because they don't realize that whatever they post on, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or a video on YouTube. So even if it's a distributor, so for instance, Plexus, uh, they got a warning letter last week and they're a multi-level marketing company with a ton of distributors. So I'm not sure if it was the actual company who was making the claims or one of their distributors, but either way, the FTC, the FDA see it all as the same thing. They sure do. You're responsible for whatever you're saying on your label, which is your website, your social, your blogs, and especially if there's commerce involved. So there was also another recent FDA warning letter where an Amazon affiliate got a warning letter. They had an informational blog. They were talking about some immune stuff, and then they linked to an Amazon shopping cart, and they received a warning letter. Right. And what's your advice for those companies out there that are marketing perhaps immunity products? It's a delicate issue. What would you say is the best way for companies to go about marketing their immune products? That is a great question. <laughs> and to be honest, I would say be very careful. Pre-pandemic, you had a little more flexibility in how you can message your product with an immune statement. Now, if you're making an applied immune claim, and then mentioning COVID or coronavirus or Wuhan or any of those buzzwords anywhere on your website, you're at a much higher elevated risk of getting a warning letter. For example, an applied immune claim with the hashtag COVID can certainly get you a warning letter in these days. That is definitely a red flag. I mean, you are asking for a warning letter with that. Yeah, you certainly are. And it's interesting. In, in the past, you know, you could make an immune claim, you could use a hashtag that was maybe a little bit pushy. Now the FDA and FTC are paying close attention to this. Asa, what are some other ways that the FDA and the FTC are looking into some of these companies? I think most of us are aware that we should not make claims. But what I've seen is that companies can have a compliant manufacturing process, they can have a compliant website, but then they may hire a social media manager or something that doesn't quite understand the regulations. So the FDA and FTC are not only looking at your hashtags, as we talked about, they're also looking at infographics. You could post an infographic on an Instagram page that says anxiety or pain. And then if that Instagram page links back to a shopping cart where a customer can purchase your product, that can get you a warning letter Somewhat recently, in the past, I'd say, year, the FDA has been citing videos. So if you put something on YouTube, that can certainly be ripe for warning letter risk. Citing studies, you have to be very careful of citing studies. The FDA and FTC use what's called the 20% rule, or the reasonable consumer expectation rule, for lack of a better description. 20, if 20% 20 of the people would, would think that your product is implied to do what you're saying that something may do by citing a study, then you are implicitly implying that your product will do what the study is, is for. Let me go into a little more detail. If you have an informational educational piece on your website and you're citing a study about hemp products for pain or something like that, that's a pretty risky but still gray area. Now the way that you could turn that into a claim is you could 
put your company logo at the top of that informational educational piece. You could have a hyperlink to your shopping cart or have some kind of type of call to action for a customer to buy your product through that well-intended educational piece. I don't think a lot of people know that. I certainly didn't. You know, it's funny for me, I'm sitting on my couch, it's, you know, 1030 at night, my cat's on my lap, and my wife is coming out saying, Asa, what are you doing on the couch right now? Come to bed. And I'm saying, I'm reading warning letters. So I really <laughs> love, re I love reading them, especially because I can digest them and then discuss how to avoid them with our, our community. I would also like to say another tip is some warning letters go back over two years on company websites and socials. So if a company has been around for a while, the content is searchable, but probably not providing much, if any, benefit to the customer or the consumer. So look in the forgotten corners of your website. Look back at these old blogs and social media posts. Are there any claims there that you now don't make? I suggest going back retroactively. Although I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that if it was on the internet, it, it never truly goes away. It's always going to live there whether you delete it or not. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really great point. Anything digital is there forever. In my picture or in my vision of the FDA inspectors and the Federal Trade Commission, and based on the warning letters and the times that they look at website, I think that the FDA and FTC, if they see a company trying to clean up any claims on their website, it lowers their risk of getting a warning letter. And that's because you look at when you get into the depths or the really the, the deep details of these warning letters, they may look at a social media post from a year ago. They may visit your site a month ago. They may visit your site a week ago. So I think if they visit your site and they see that you've cleaned up maybe older claims on your website, at least in my guesstimate, that would lower your risk of getting a warning. So looking ahead in terms of CBD, there are a lot of people predicting that it's going to go the dietary supplement route. Some people think maybe the food route. What are your predictions? What do you see the FDA doing about CBD? So the, the FDA is very concerned with cumulative exposure. And it's hard to limit this when you're eating a CBD gummy in the morning, a CBD granola bar, then a CBD cookie, which actually sounds really delicious right now. <laughs> and, then maybe, <laughs> and then maybe a CBD jelly bean for dessert. So in my opinion, supplements are the best approach for regulating hemp CBD. Everybody I've spoken to, a number of experts, that's sort of the common sentiment. Because as you said, I mean, you could have something for breakfast and then for lunch. And then maybe, you know, there's just so many options. And in terms of dosage, it just gets to be too much. Certainly. I think that it is going to go the supplement approach, which really is the best approach for regulating any active herbal extract especially one that shouldn't be taken in excess. The dietary supplement framework is great for regulating quality and truth and labeling. Part of truth and labeling includes proper warnings, which are not really allowed on food. Proper warning that would be on a herbal or dietary supplement would be not for use in children. And also dietary supplements have a framework for adverse event reporting. So any predictions? Do you see it happening anytime soon? What are your thoughts on that? I think that it's probably going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> I mean, it's it's going to happen in the next couple of years. It's my guess that the FDA is going to come out with some guidance requiring CBD to be a new dietary ingredient. 
they're going to give the industry, let's say 180 days to submit their new dietary ingredient notifications called NDINs. And then from there, that'll be it. That'll be the, that'll be the regulatory pathway forward. Now, in order to do the safety and toxicological studies for a new dietary ingredient notification, you sure better be starting soon or several months ago. Yeah, it takes quite a bit of time as well as money, so they better get on it. You know, the, the wine's out of the bottle, the toothpaste is out of the tube. As we know, commissioner of the FDA said it'd be a fool's errand to try to think that the CBD is going away. It's not going away. So we really, really urge the FDA to act with their authority to regulate CBD soon so we can have a safe way to provide this really health-giving product. But I would like to also say, Danielle, the industry has really come together and self-regulated. You know, if you go buy an echinacea tincture at a natural food store, for example, you don't expect to see a a third-party certificate of analysis with that. In the hemp industry, that's very commonplace too. So there's a lot of progressive or regulatory forward thinkers in the hemp CBD industry. There certainly are a lot of proactive actors that are taking it upon themselves to police themselves, as you mentioned. And yeah, a lot of eyes on Commissioner Hahn. So we'll see what he does with that. Asa Waldstein, thank you so much for sharing your insight and all your tips and tricks here on the NutriCast. Thanks so much. It's been a real treat. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast on iTunes. And for even more neutral-related content, you can always head to NutraIngredients-USA.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.